Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Live from our nation's capital. All talk here in Washington, D.C. turns to President-elect Joe Biden's administration. Historically speaking, the markets have performed better when there is divided government. The biggest pressure for physical stimulus is an uptick in cases. Bloomberg Sound Off. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. Biden has promised again and again that he will unite the country. State governments control elections. That's in the Constitution. I think that we can expect a smooth, thoughtful, methodical transition. This is... Is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. I'm June Grasso sitting in for Kevin Cirilli. President Trump makes an extraordinary attempt to overturn Michigan's popular vote. President-elect Biden's team is working behind the scenes to try to get Trump's allies to end the transition logjam. Georgia's Secretary of State will certify Biden's win in that state today and the first sign in weeks of possible movement on stimulus. Well, President Trump is making an astonishing attempt to reverse Joe Biden's victory in the battleground state of Michigan, overrule the voters, and subvert the results of the 2020 presidential election. The president is apparently trying to get Michigan Republican legislators to ignore the popular vote, which Biden won, and pick a slate of electors who will award Trump the state's electoral college votes. Joining me is Lawrence Lessig, a professor of law and leadership at Harvard Law School and founder of Equal Citizens. Well, no state legislator has ever attempted this so far, so I guess that says a lot. What does the Constitution say that's led to this theory? Well, the Constitution gives state legislatures the power to control how electors are uh, uh, appointed. And many people, starting with the Chief Justice Rehnquist, thought that what that means is the legislatures have a kind of superpower, that they can override any other constraint and uh, act whenever they want. So that extreme view is even after an election, they should have the power to pick a slate of electors that fits with their view about who should get the votes from their state. Is that a correct interpretation of the Constitution or the Supreme Court's recent rulings? So it's not. And it's not for two very different reasons. So the first reason is the Constitution does give state legislatures special power over selecting the manner by which electors will be appointed. But it also gives Congress the power to say when the electors have to be appointed. And Congress has said when the electors have to be appointed, that is Election Day. So there's no ability under federal law for a state to pick electors after Election Day, which is what which is what would happen if the president is successful in, for example, Michigan. So that's point number one. Point number two, the Supreme Court, in a case I actually argued in the spring about whether electors uh, were free to vote their conscience. Supreme Court said, look, whatever the framers originally thought about whether electors had discretion or not, democracy has overtaken it. And today, electors are constrained by what the people say. So, you know, if electors are constrained to do what the people say, then so too must state legislatures be constrained to do what the people say. If the framers' design of creating a system to select the president not dependent on somebody like state legislatures is to be preserved. So then, despite all that, is it possible that, let's say, the Michigan state legislators President Trump is meeting with some of them today. They say that they're going to do this anyway. They try to do it anyway. Is that possible? That's what's so scary here. You know, you can get lawyers on who will tell you what the law is, and I doubt you'll find any credible lawyer who would say the law is different from how I've described it. But this will not be decided by a court. This will be decided by Congress. And so the question is really if on uh, January 6th, the day that um, Congress will meet in a joint session, the vice president uh, opens up uh, the slates of electors, uh, the certificates of the votes of the electors. If he finds more than one slate for any state, Congress has to decide which slate it's going to count. 
Now, the law says and constrains how these slates are to be counted. Um, and, you know, Michigan in particular has a Democratic governor. The law says if there's two slates from one state, then you take the slate that's been signed by the governor. So that would be the Joe Biden slate. But still, you require Congress to follow the law. And we could easily imagine, given the kind of craziness that's going on right now, that Congress, the Senate, um, vice president, would think it more important to follow their politics rather than the law. And if they do that, it's not quite clear what could stop them. That is very scary. Now, let's talk a little bit more about Michigan, because the Republicans in Michigan, even the ones who have been who are traveling to the White House today, keep saying that there's no way there's no way in Michigan law that they could do that. And the same thing was suggested in Pennsylvania. Are there any other states where, you know, the Republicans or President Trump might target in order to try this? Well, there are basically five states that are in Joe Biden's column that have Republican legislatures. Two of them have Republican governors. So Arizona and Georgia have Republican governors and Republican legislatures. But Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania have Republican legislatures but Democratic governors. So the real states that the president um, should be targeting um, first are the states where uh, there's a Republican governor. Because if the Republican governor signed a Republican slate, um, uh, despite even despite the argument I just gave you about why they can't appoint a mayor slate <laughs> right now, you could see them sliding by more easily than if the governor has signed uh, a slate that is not the Republican slate. But I'm sure what's going to happen is that the president's going to bring them into the Oval Office. There'll be some fancy lawyer from the Justice Department who sits there, and that lawyer explains to them this theory, this superpower theory about the legislatures. And uh, they say, you're right, under Michigan law, um, nothing tells you you can do this. But the Supreme Court has said that state law does not constrain the legislature. Um, you know, for example, Colorado has a law that says, the Constitution says, that the electors are appointed by a vote. But um, the Supreme Court's been very clear that even the state Constitution can't constrain how the legislature decides to allocate its electors. So at least before an election, the state of uh, Colorado, the legislature could say, we're going to pick the electors directly. So, so this is the theory they're going to try to pitch to the, um, to the uh, Michigan uh, Republicans and the Pennsylvania Republicans, and I'm sure every one of those five states, the legislatures in each of those five states. Uh, and this is why so many of us have been working as hard as we can to blow up the idea that this theory has any basis in law. It's just pure power. It's just a pure power move by people who can't accept the fact that um, uh, not only did they lose the popular vote, they also lost the Electoral College vote. You mentioned who might be in the room when the president meets with the Michigan Republican legislators. And Rudy Giuliani was actually supposed to be the one in the room. And we've heard a lot of strange interpretations of the law from him lately. And yesterday, he even said that the fact that two of the people who were certifying the vote in Michigan from the Detroit area, the fact that they had sort of tried to take it back, meant that that vote was subverted. Is that just plain incorrect? Yeah, that's incorrect. I mean, the ultimate question of whether Michigan's uh, results get certified is a function of Michigan law. But even if they're not certified, if you've got uh, electors selected from the Democratic uh, slate in Michigan, signed by the Democratic governor, Congress is still free to count them even if they've not been certified. So the certification earns them what's called a safe harbor status, which means that presumptively Congress promises that only if both houses vote against accepting the slate, they will accept the slate. Um, but the argument uh, that, you know, the claim that because you don't get certified, the electors don't count is just just a mistake. It's it's certainly not true. So can we breathe easier on? I believe it's December thirteenth. When when the, well, when the we, go ahead. Yeah. So it's on December fourteenth. They will vote. Um, and um, and even if there are alternative slates, both slates have to gather and vote. Um, and so on that day, we will know how many slates of electors have actually voted. And we'll be in a lot of uh, anxiety for the next three weeks if in these cr critical states like Pennsylvania or Michigan um, 
we see more than one slate of electors casting their votes um, because they're at least then capable of being counted, um, depending on what Congress does. Um, but if on the 14th you only see one slate from each of those states that's voting, then I think we're almost in the clear. There are still games that could be played, but they'll be very, very hard to play. Well, um, I guess we have to watch each state as each state certifies then, and then we breathe a sigh of the relief later on? Each state certifies, but the real question is, on the day that the electors are to vote, December 14th, do more than one slate of electors from any state gather to vote? Uh, and if um, only one slate votes and that state has been certified, those are the votes that will be counted. I, can, I think that's 99% sure. But if more than one slate gets together, you know, and it doesn't even have to be approved by anybody. They can just gather and say, we are the Republican slate from Pennsylvania, and we're going to All right, we have ballot. to let it go there. I won't be sleeping for a while. Thank you so much, Professor. That's Professor Lawrence Lessig of Harvard Law School. Coming up, we're going to be talking about Biden and antitrust. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. I'm June Grasso sitting in for Kevin Cirilli. Google, Facebook and other tech giants are likely to continue to confront dangers to their dominant positions and diversification efforts given Joe Biden's election. But how much will that be mitigated by the fact that the Democrats so far have failed to gain a majority in the Congress? Joining me is Jennifer Ree, Bloomberg Intelligence senior litigation analyst. So, Jen, what does Biden win mean without the blue wave that comes with it? You know, I think it means for, for enforcement, you know, the activity that goes on at the Federal Trade Commission and the Department of Justice with respect to antitrust investigations, lawsuits, merger review, I think that that, that will become more vigorous. I, I think it actually has been fairly vigorous uh, during the Trump administration, and I think we should just expect that to continue and continue to see these big tech platforms getting investigated, the continuation of the Department of Justice's lawsuit against Google, if the FTC sues Google in December, as has been rumored, you know, a continuation of that suit as well, and maybe other suits. Um, and I think that there could be more cooperation with some of the states with those suits as well, because you have a lot of Democratic state attorneys general that have been doing their own investigation and are also talking about bringing a suit. So to the extent that there's some, you know, cooperation or, or work done to consolidate those matters, it, it may be more likely to happen. Uh, with respect to legislation, I think that's where the lack of the, the, the blue wave that some thought might happen in this election um, impacts what goes on in the antitrust world, because there really is, um, there are some pretty significant proposals, um, as well as already written bills that are out there right now and floating around in the House and the Senate, and, and we expect more to come from the House um, after we saw a report um, by a, the majority staff um, in terms of proposals for laws. And I think that the fact that the Congress is closely divided means you're going to have to have compromise in order to get anything passed and moving forward and actually enacted. And what that means so, is, you know, any of these proposals by the Democrats are going to get watered down and they're going to become more moderate than where they start. All right. So, Jen, it was often said or at least felt that the Obama administration was not that tough on tech and the Internet platform. So why do you think that the Biden administration will be different? You know, I think that they'll be different now because it's just for it's it's four years later and things have changed. There's just a lot of momentum right now in terms of, of going after the big tech platforms and with respect to sort of a movement um, of thinkers that believe that they abuse their monopoly positions. And I just don't think 
that that can be walked back at this point. And I don't even think that Biden really wants to. I mean, he hasn't said very much, but some of the spokespeople for his campaign have said that he's on board with all of this, that he um, – you know, is thinking about antitrust reform and is concerned about antitrust reform and does have concerns about the way some of these big tech platforms um, conduct their business. So I think that we just see a continuation because it's just sort of, uh, you know, a train that can't be stopped at this point. Now, speaking of trains, about the train (laughs) at the, the DOJ, the antitrust division. So I assume we expect another head of the antitrust division, not Macon, Del Rahim anymore. Right. How might right. that change what goes on there? You know, in my view, it, it, I don't think it's going to change very much. I think it'll be incremental, and to, it'll be incrementally tougher. The antitrust enforcement will be slightly tougher. There's always been this belief, I think, that a Democratic administration is tougher on antitrust than a Republican administration. But if you go back and look at statistics, it's actually not really the case. It's, it's maybe on the margins. They're slightly tougher on certain kinds of mergers. So I think a lot depends on who Biden appoints um, and who gets confirmed to be the assistant attorney general in charge of antitrust, because that person, you know, has a big role in shaping policy. And and what they decide to do and how they move forward is going to depend on whether that person is a, a more moderate Democrat or a more progressive, more activist Democrat, somebody, you know, who has views like Elizabeth Warren, who, who really believes these companies should be broken up. Just because it's a Joe Biden, I would suspect that it's going to be somebody who's more moderate. Um, but even a moderate at this point, I think, is going to look carefully at these big tech platforms and is going to continue these lawsuits that uh, are getting started in the Trump administration. So on that side, um, on the DOJ side, I just see sort of a continuation, maybe a little strengthening. The FTC side, though, could be quite different. Um, and again, that depends on who is appointed commissioner. We have five now, and three of them are Republicans. Now, the funny thing is that those three Republicans don't have terms that end until the first one in 2022 and the other two even after that, and they don't technically have to leave. So theoretically, they don't technically, do they normally leave? Yes. So at least the chairperson, this is Joe Simons, um, a Republican, generally the chairperson leaves. But he doesn't have to, and he can't be um, fired by Joe Biden for political or policy reasons. So, um, and we have one Republican at least who said he intends to stay and finish his term. That's Noah Phillips. So normally what happens is if the chairperson stays, they get demoted to a commissioner rather than the chairperson, and one of the Democrats either um, becomes the chairperson or somebody new is appointed to be the chairperson, and you flip your majority three to two. So, yes, June, probably the majority will flip three to two from Republican majority to a Democrat majority, but you you just don't know when. It'll depend on when Joe Simons decides to step down and when somebody new is appointed to replace him. But And uh, we don't know. Nothing is normal right now. So... In light of the fact that we see the Trump administration doing a lot of different things, for example, in the environment, trying to push through regulations, issuing permits, is it likely that they might try to file lawsuits against Facebook or Amazon or Apple before Joe Biden's inaugurated? Yeah, well, I have heard, you know, there have been a lot of leaks in the news about an FTC lawsuit against Facebook coming in December. So, yes. Um, I don't think that there's any that that is political necessarily. I, I actually think the timing is about right. I mean, when a, when the FTC investigates a company and they've been investigating for over a year, which is the case here, if they've decided that the evidence shows that there is anti-competitive conduct uh, that's been going on, that then they bring a suit uh, if they think a suit makes sense. And and so I think the timing is right. And I don't really think bringing it now. Uh, before the changeover is political. I haven't heard anything, June, about lawsuits against Amazon and Apple. And, and I've always thought from the beginning of all of this that the, so those two companies were at lower risk of a suit than Facebook and Google. It doesn't mean the Democrats won't down the road bring them, but I don't see lawsuits against either of those companies getting filed uh, before the inauguration on January 20th. Just about a minute here, Jen. So have you heard any rumors about who might be the next attorney general? 
You know, I haven't heard a lot, though I have heard rumors that it's more likely to be a moderate you know, than a, than a progressive. Um, I do know that Terrell McSweeney, who's been with the DOJ in the past and was an FTC commissioner, is an advisor to Biden and I think might be on that list. Um, she is, I would classify her as a fairly moderate Democrat, maybe moderate to slightly left. So that's one possibility. Um, we do know that some of the advisors that he's using right now to help him with these placements are mostly moderate Democrats. And so the likelihood that it's going to be a moderate seems pretty good. All right. Well, they also have to think about the fact that it has to get through the Senate. And yes. if the Georgia runoffs go to the Republicans, that's that's a problem uh, for Joe right. Biden. And probably he's going to face a lot of problems with some of the people he might want to put in as attorney general and have to go for a moderate. Thank you so much, Jen. It's always a pleasure. That's Jennifer Ree, Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Litigation Analyst. Coming up next on Sound On, we're going to be looking at what President Trump is doing right now, talking to Michigan legislatures, legislators and see whether or not there's a political reason that those legislators might not go along with what President Trump wants to do. I'm June Grasso sitting in for Kevin Cirilli. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Live from our nation's capital. All talk here in Washington, D.C. turns to President-elect Joe Biden's administration. Historically speaking, the markets have performed better when there is divided government. The biggest pressure for physical stimulus is an uptick in cases. Bloomberg Sound On. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. Biden has promised again and again that he will unite the country. State governments control elections. That's in the Constitution. I think that we can expect a smooth, thoughtful, methodical transition. This is... Is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. I'm June Grasso sitting in for Kevin Cirilli. Coming up, we're going to be talking about President Trump seeking to leverage the power of his office today in an extraordinary attempt to block President-elect Joe Biden's victory in Michigan, with President Trump calling some Republican lawmakers from Michigan to the Oval Office. Michigan's top Republican lawmakers arrived at the White House this afternoon to meet with President Trump in what many are calling an attempt to circumvent the popular vote from the election in Michigan. Here's Democratic Representative Debbie Dingell today. The president is trying to, I don't know what word to call it, is cheat his way to victory by pressuring local officials. Joining me for this hour are two guests, John Sidalitis, geopolitical strategist at Trilogy Advisors and diplomacy consultant to the State Department, and Kevin Walling, Democratic strategist at HG Creative Media. Welcome to you both. So, uh, John, let me start with you. Debbie Dingell said she didn't know what to call it. What would you call it, this meeting that President Trump and is carrying and the effort to keep going with this Michigan um, decertification almost? Well, it's not just Michigan, obviously, Julian. First of all, thank you for having me on your program this afternoon. Um, it, it's part of a larger strategy that I think is making it more and more difficult for President Trump to explain to the American people that there's a, a serious pathway to an electoral victory. And I think especially if you look at yesterday's press conference, where there were many allegations that were made about manipulation of votes and, you know, uh, systems that were built by the Cubans and the Venezuelans that involved servers in Germany. There were so many allegations. It's a myriad of confusion. And, and I think the problem for the president right now is that time is running out because in the next two weeks, states will continue to certify the outcome of the elections. And December 8th is hard and fast. And I don't know that he's got time, however legitimate it might be in Michigan or in Pennsylvania or Wisconsin, time is his enemy. And I don't know that they have a pathway to his desired outcome. 
Kevin, I just spoke to Professor Lawrence Lessig of Harvard, and he said basically that this is not a legal gambit by President Trump. It's not possible under the Constitution, but that doesn't mean that it may not be tried. How afraid are you that it might be tried? Yeah, June, it's good to be with you. And, and, and I'll pick up where, where John just left off. It is a question of timing for the president, and he is running short on time. I think what we saw out of that hour in 45-minute press conference uh, yesterday that John referenced was, you know, uh, wildly uh, uh, profuse with allegations of all, all kinds of wrongdoing, but little on the evidence um, that we've actually seen entered into the court. Uh, the president and his legal team are something like 30 to 1 in terms of victories in all of these key states that they're trying to move forward uh, in. And again, to John's point with timing, you know, you saw, uh, for example, Georgia certify the results today as the, you know, Joe Biden is the president-elect. You're seeing Michigan, all 83 counties have already certified the results. So this invitation that you referenced at the top of the conversation, I don't think is actually going to move the ball down the field because these canvassing boards have already certified the results on the local level. So I think to the point that you raised, uh, June, and it's a good one, Lawrence Lessig's, uh, you know, comment here uh, that this is all now a PR stunt and uh, further efforts to delegitimize the election in the eyes of the American people. And to a certain degree, it's working for the president. You know, something like two-thirds uh, of Republicans uh, believe that the election is not legitimate. So as this process continues and moves into this PR stage that it has really o only been in the wake of the election, uh, it is successful in that regard just in terms of optics, but not in terms of the legal ease necessary to overturn the will of the American people. So, Kevin, let me follow up on that, because even if the president and his lawyers are losing in court, what they could do in Michigan if they convince these Michigan legislators to go with them has nothing to do with the courts at this time. I mean, it would be it would be taken up by the courts on, you know, on down the road. But right now, could if he convinces them, couldn't he then have two slates of electors or one Republican slate of electors going to, you know, to be to Congress? Yeah, no, it's, it's a good point. I mean, I, I think the, the public just isn't there. I mean, you know, the, the president-elect Joe Biden won Michigan uh, with a margin of 11 times the size of what uh, Donald Trump won the election by just four years ago. Uh, and yes, it will become a, a, a competing issue if there's two slates of electors. But you've already seen some unwillingness on behalf of those two Republican leaders, the Speaker and the Senate President, in their unwillingness to overturn what the will of the, the people in their state has been previous to this meeting. We'll see the president's power of persuasion like we saw on display with those two Republican canvas uh, uh, chairs uh, previous to this. But again, I don't think the will of the, the Michiganders and the American people is there to uh, to uh, appoint a, a different slate of electors that isn't reflective of the will of, of, uh, of Michigan voters, for sure. John, I understand that the, the Michigan legislators were greeted on their way to the at the airport uh, in Michigan with a lot of protesters who were complaining and that there's been a lot of public angst, anxiety, and just anger about what it seems they're going to talk to President Trump about. Is that enough to stop them? Or is the, is the power of the presidency and the persuasion that Trump may exert more important to them? I would say that it's something far more important than both protesters and the president of the United States. And that is, you know, something that goes to the heart of our constitutional democracy, June. I think it is very important. And, you know, let the president exhaust every legal option so that, to Kevin's point, when this process is over, however many people feel today that this is not this has not been a legitimate election, hopefully as each state certifies and we come to agreement, we come to recognize as as an American people that we do actually have free and fair elections in the United States. It's absolutely critical for the future.
future of our democracy, that we have a peaceful transfer of power and that the next president is accepted by as many citizens as possible as a legitimate president. So I think, and I don't know these individuals from Michigan, so I can't speak to them personally. I don't know what they're thinking, but I have to believe that most lawmakers in that position of responsibility will do what the law says is the right thing to do. And I don't know enough about the Michigan laws here to see where the president's arguments can be persuasive. But I think like so much that's happening in the public arena right now, June, uh, they can talk about allegations and accusations and the like, but without evidence. The American people, I think, will believe evidence. But if they don't see it, it doesn't matter what rhetoric comes from one side or the other, the president's supporters or the president's opponents. Without evidence, these will largely be seen as baseless accusations. And I think that damages the process in the weeks ahead. I and, wish and that June, that were true. In, okay, I, go I, ahead, I Kevin. Agree. Yeah, I was just going to agree completely with John. And you're seeing some some fractures within Republicans on the Hill, uh, Republicans on the state level. You saw the, the Georgia Republican Secretary of State out there saying, show the evidence. You know, Tucker Carlson on Fox News the other night uh, uh, asked to have one of the Trump uh, legal team uh, folks on uh, and say, please produce the evidence. It's, it's, we're getting past the idea, and and, uh, uh, and John's point is a very good one of, you know, you got to put up or shut up. And these uh, a handful of affidavits and things like that, voter intimidation, while, you know, they're important to investigate. And I think, to John's point, we need to make sure that, that uh, Democrats, Republicans, independents across the board have faith in our election system. Uh, but, but again, it's getting to the point where time is of the essence, and they have, have failed to produce any widespread evidence of this fraud uh, whatsoever with it regards to voting machines, changing votes, anything of the like, dead folks voting in massive numbers, any of this kind of stuff. You're just not seeing that out of this Trump legal team, and they're really grasping at straws. All right. Coming up, we're going to be talking about more of those straws that they appear to be grasping at and what we've heard from the legal team, as well as what President-elect Biden's team is doing behind the scenes to try to get Trump's allies to end the transition logjam. I'm June Grasso, and you're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. I'm June Grasso, sitting in for Kevin Cirilli. Georgia's top election official certified results today showing that Joe Biden won the presidential race over Republican President Donald Trump. The certification brings the state one step closer to wrapping up an election that has been fraught with unfounded accusations of fraud by Trump and his supporters. But here's Vice President Mike Pence speaking at a Defend the Majority rally in Canton, Georgia, today. I can tell you, as our election contest continues, here in Georgia and in courts across the country, I'll make you a promise. We're going to keep fighting until every legal vote is counted. I've been talking to John Sidalitis, geopolitical strategist at Trilogy Advisor and diplomacy consultant to the State Department, and Kevin Walling, democratic strategist at HG Creative Media. Kevin, as long as... Top Republicans, including the vice president, say they're going to keep waiting until every, you know, legal vote, whatever that means, is cast. Will this ever come to an end? Yeah, June, it's a, it's a great question. I mean, I, and again, from our, our previous conversation, it's got to come to an end very quickly. Uh, as you point out with Georgia, they certified the results today, uh, Michigan, Pennsylvania, uh, Wisconsin, the key other battleground states that are in question, all certify uh, next week. Uh, the vast majority of the American people have already moved on from this election and now want GSA and other bodies to move forward in terms of uh, this transition. And, and interestingly enough, you're seeing, you know, Senator Joni Ernst fresh off her kind of surprise uh, reelection to some in, in Iowa uh, saying uh, that, you know, we need to move forward with this president-elect. And uh, this transition needs to move forward. You saw a really strong statement uh, out of Mitt Romney really tearing into uh, President Trump uh, in terms of what he's trying to do with these uh, local officials, these local election officials. So, again, you're seeing these cracks. We'll see if they rise up to the level of Mitch McConnell and, and Kevin McCarthy. I think they both are very good at judging where the center of their caucus is. And if you see, start to see, especially in the Senate, more and more Republicans fearful of 
you know, you've got some key Senate races that we can talk about, too, in 2022, even though that's, you know, two mm-hmm. years down the road. It's never too soon to start talking about the next election. So when you start to see... <laughs> it's too some, soon for uh, me right now. Move, Let's finish this one first. C, you know, CYA mentality in terms of, uh, of covering your behind right. with some of these elected officials on the Republican side. Once you start to see some movement with them, we saw some with Larry Hogan, with some of the actually conservative governors coming out of a pretty successful call with the National Governors Association, the president-elect. So it will reach a groundswell, whether it is before these states certify next week or after is only the question for, uh, you know, what will actually move uh, the GSA and others to, to really start to transition in earnest. So, John, my question is whether anyone in those states that President Trump is the battleground states that President Trump is is fighting to overturn the election results. Is anyone thinking about what overturning the election results means for local elections there that have taken place for, you know, for the Senate elections there? I mean, if you just if the if the vote isn't legitimate for the president, then it's not legitimate for anyone else either. Well, I'm not sure I would look at it that way, June, because uh, at least the president's team has alleged that uh, there are tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, cumulative ballots across these battleground states that just had a vote for Biden on them, and they didn't have any down-ballot votes. And I don't think anyone is really challenging what has been happening uh, with almost every other race. There's very few contested races right now, except for the presidential in, in a few states. But if I can add some historical precedent and perspective here, I think it's also helpful to the discussion, because in 2000, we all remember, it took a little bit more than five weeks, about 37, 38 days to sort out the Chad counting uh, down in Miami-Dade and Palm Beach and Florida so that Florida could be certified. And uh, in 2016, remember, there was a very strong campaign by a number of people who were shocked by Donald Trump's victories that were calling for faithless electors to violate the will of the voters and the popular vote in each state when it came to the Electoral College. And so we waited until the Electoral College took place. And I think that's what's going to happen here, June. Uh, December 8th is when all of the states will have selected their electors. And December 15th, the Electoral College vote takes place. And then the presidential contest is finished. And so unless there are some significant legal challenges that almost every attorney today is unable to see in the accusations that were made yesterday and in recent days, um, it looks like there's going to be a clean Electoral College selection process in two weeks. And then in three weeks, the Electoral College will do its duty. And then we prepare for the inauguration. And I, I'm confident that we'll, it'll be a smooth, peaceful transition to power, but only after the Electoral College has done its duty on December 15th. So now, June, can, the, I jump in? Uh, can I jump in? Yes, go ahead. Go to, jump to in. Is, and, it's, and it's good to have that historical perspective, too. But but I think that, you know, the, the 2016 example is, you know, Hillary Clinton called Donald Trump that night. And, and while there were some pockets in my party uh, that, that did not, you know, couldn't fathom the fact that Donald Trump uh, was successful uh, in terms of 306 electoral college votes and, and winning the presidency just four years ago. No one seriously objected or halted a transition to take place from the Obama administration and Trump administration. And that started nearly immediately after that concession speech. And I think, you know, one of the key things, too, coming out of Florida and the recount uh, that we saw, and actually it's interesting to see Ron Klain now as the incoming uh, chief of staff to uh, the president-elect, was the, the, you know, the leader of that uh, effort on behalf of Al Gore down in Florida. But one of the key things that we learned coming out of that uh, extended, that shortened transition, rather, and, and the extended uh, counting of the ballots in, in Florida was that it really hampered uh, the incoming Bush administration, the Republican Bush administration, in terms of, you know, uh, September 11th and, and really getting a sure footing when it came to, to national security. And, and there are some parallels in terms of what we're dealing with COVID um, on this national level, and, and how do we distribute this vaccine? The great news of the vaccines moving forward, something that should be credited to Operation Warp Speed in this administration. So, you know, it, it's a, a bit unconscionable that, that this uh, administration is still holding up the transition uh, when we have so many issues we need to tackle as part of this transition, uh, most especially the COVID-19 crisis. 
All right, both of you, stay with me. Coming up, I want to talk about that. I want to talk about the fact that Joe Biden's team is projecting this image of calm. Politico is reporting that behind the scenes, the advisors are in this midst of a fierce lobbying effort to get Trump's allies to crack, and they're dispatching emissaries from past administrations. Let's talk about what can be done to, to solve the logjam of this transition. I'm June Grasso, and you're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. I'm June Grasso, sitting in for Kevin Cirilli. President-elect Joe Biden has been criticizing President Trump and says that he's hindering his team's ability to get up-to-date information on the coronavirus pandemic and to fight the pandemic when he gets into office. Now, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi today criticized the Republican Party for what she says is inaction on pandemic relief legislation. We are in a full-blown economic and health catastrophe, and it's amazing to see the patience the GOP has for other people's suffering. I've been talking to Kevin Walling, Democratic strategist at HG Creative Media, and John Sidalitis, geopolitical strategist at Trilogy Advisors and diplomacy consultant to the State Department. Kevin, I'll start with you. Is enough happening behind the scenes to allow the incoming Biden administration to, to fight the pandemic in the way it needs to? Yeah, June, it, it really hasn't. Uh, I mean, and you're starting to see, I think, you know, half a dozen or so Republican senators have come forward, uh, especially, you know, I like this quote from Marco Rubio said that, you know, it would cause no harm to be helpful to this transition, uh, you know, between the president-elect and the Trump administration. I mean, the fact that, you know, the president-elect can't call Tony Fauci directly uh, to run through what the plan is and to discuss in any kind of details a plan for vaccine distribution until the GSA administrator, Emily uh, Murphy, releases uh, that those funds and, and acknowledges the fact that Joe Biden is the president-elect, I think is a dangerous thing. And we talked about this in the last block. You know, one of the, the uh, main uh, recommendations coming out of the 9-11 Commission report was that abbreviated transition between the Clinton administration and Bush administration, uh, which, uh, which caused the incoming Bush administration to be a bit flat-footed uh, when it came to national security, we could see the same process play out where a vaccine, a vaccine distribution could be delayed for weeks, for months, because the Biden, incoming Biden administration hasn't been able to see what HHS um, has uh, come up with. The HHS Secretary Alex Azar is saying, I, my hands are tied. I can't speak to the Biden team and the Biden-Harris administration team uh, before, uh, you know, Administrator uh, Murphy uh, uh, certifies. Uh, that uh, she believes that, that see, uh, this election is, is taking place. Kind of silly because Tony Fauci is able to talk to the media, so it seems like it would not be much of a stretch to have him talk to the Biden people. John, let me ask you this. Biden has said he hasn't ruled out legal action to try to force the hand of the GSA administrator. Would legal action work here? Do you think it's advisable? Uh, I, I don't know the answer to that because that could be a constitutional question uh, in play. Look, uh, the GSA administrator serves at the pleasure of the president of the United States. So until he is determined that it's the right time to proceed with releasing all the funds and making sure all of the administrative openings are in place to provide for the transition regarding staff and personnel, it's probably not going to happen. And I think, you know, one of the problems that we have here, June, is that you know, we haven't really touched on this in this segment. There's not enough time, but <laughs> relations are so raw between the Democratic Party and the president, you know, dating back to his campaign being spied on by the Obama administration, the Russia collusion story, impeachment. There's just no level of trust right now. And now you have a president who's who's convinced himself that uh, the election was taken away from him. And, and don't forget, he still has about 90 to 95 percent support of Republicans within the party. And almost every other Republican senator, member of Congress knows that. So Kevin accurately notes, I think there are about a half a dozen 
lawmakers, Republicans, who've called for the president to open up the transition process. But most of them are remaining very, very quiet. They are going to let the president make that decision. And I think there's one more factor here, June, and that is that they need the president to help raise funds and to motivate voters. We've got the future of the Senate at stake in Georgia with the two uh, races. And so if Democrats win both of those seats, uh, then you've got a 50-50 tie in the Senate. And Vice President Kamala Harris is the tiebreaker, and you've got complete Democratic control. So the Republicans aren't just looking at what's happening right now, but they're also making sure that they're in a position to exercise some level of political power come 2021. Kevin, Treasury, Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin made a bid to revive the stalled stimulus talks with congressional Democrats, uh, proposing the use of untapped Federal Reserve relief funds. And that's the first sign in weeks of any movement on stimulus. What's the likelihood that we're going to see stimulus before the new, the new uh, government? Yeah, June, it's, it's a great question. I mean, if that wasn't a motivating factor for Republicans and Democrats heading into the election cycle, I don't necessarily see it happening uh, in the lame duck unless public pressure gets behind uh, some kind of effort. Um, you know, as you know, a lot of the benefits are based on the calendar year in terms of unemployment, uh, uh, student loan forgiveness. That all comes up at the end of, of the month of December, um, at, you know, and actually some benefits end, I think, the day after Christmas uh, to, uh, to some degree. Um, so unless there's some public willingness to put pressure on this lame duck, um, I don't see necessarily um, them being more successful than they were uh, before the election, when the election should have been a, a huge motivating factor. I know it was for Secretary Mnuchin, uh, but they just couldn't get there in terms of, of uh, meeting somewhere in the middle uh, with, uh, with, with, with a budget. Um, you know, and, and, you know, we'll see now if there's added pressure uh, on Speaker Pelosi, on uh, Leader McConnell uh, to come up with a deal. But again, without that election hanging over them, that might not be enough to, to push them to do something. Uh, aside from uh, public engagement on this. John, what's your take on the possibility of stimulus action? It's tough to tell today because we don't know to what extent there's urgency being felt by the Senate and House leadership, both from their members and from the, the general public. Recall that there were some significant cracks in Nancy Pelosi's Democratic Party in October uh, with a number of lawmakers, including very progressive lawmakers, uh, urging her to take the deal from Mnuchin. That was very close to the 2.2 or 2.4 trillion package that she had put on the table. And Mnuchin, with Trump's backing, had gotten up to about 1.8, 1.9 trillion. And it was really the Senate Republicans under Majority Leader McConnell who were steadfast about a $500 billion or so very targeted COVID relief bill. So we lost that opportunity. And we have deal breakers on both sides, right? So Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer absolutely want state and local government relief. And you have a number of Republican red state lawmakers who don't want to, quote unquote, bail out governments that were profligate pre-COVID. And then the Republicans want a COVID liability protection. And you've got the trial lawyers inside the Democratic Party who are adamantly opposed because they see a number of lawsuit opportunities once we get past these lockdowns. So I think those are going to be some of the deal-breaker issues that make an agreement very difficult. But I think in terms of the need for the American people to see leadership on the part of their Congress and to get relief where it's needed, because a number of people, millions, are in desperate need of relief for a condition they have no responsibility for because of these lockdowns. So I think a lot of it will also depend on President Trump. I think it's very good news that he's got Mnuchin, Secretary Mnuchin, speaking to, I think, uh, Majority Leader McConnell and Republican Leader McCarthy today, along with White House Chief of Staff Meadows, and see if we can maybe get the groups to the table over the next several weeks. So in December, in addition to the omnibus appropriations bill that we need to fund the government through September, we also have some measure of a COVID relief, larger than what the Republicans wanted, but smaller than what the Democrats wanted. So, Kevin, just about a minute and a half here. Do you think it was a mistake for the Democrats not to accept what they could get in stimulus before the election? I, th I think it was a mistake for Republicans not to, to come up to where we were, just to, <laughs> to rephrase the question, as a Democratic strategist. But, you know, to, to John's point, and it's a very good one, it'll be interesting. It seems like, you know, Donald Trump has uh, shifted to at least some kind of legacy 
thinking. Uh, maybe he hasn't accepted uh, the writing on the wall in terms of the election, but he's clearly looking at his legacy with regards to troop involvement uh, in the Middle East uh, and, and Arctic drilling, uh, for example, in Alaska. So to John's point, this could be an interesting legacy uh, marker for Donald Trump. He was very hands-off deputizing Steve Mnuchin, the Treasury Secretary, under the first kind of uh, months of uh, round three stimulus talks. Uh, it'll be interesting to see if the president gets more involved with, you know, something that he can accomplish in the final two months of his administration for the American people. If that's a motivator for the president, if he wants to actually move on this in a way that he didn't before the election, that could be interesting as well. Okay. Well, what's going to be interesting coming up is what's on our radar. I'm going to ask my two guests what's on their radar coming up, and I'll tell you what's on mine. That's coming up next on Sound On. I'm June Grasso, and you're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. I'm June Grosso, sitting in for Kevin Cirilli, and I've been talking to Kevin Walling, Democratic strategist at HG Creative Media, and John Sinalitis, geopolitical strategist at Trilogy Advisors. So it comes time for Kevin's favorite part of the show, What's on Your Radar? Kevin, what's on your radar? Yeah, June. So uh, what's on my radar uh, is the fact that the president-elect came out yesterday and said that he uh, has chosen his nominee for Treasury Secretary, uh, that he'll likely announce it uh, sometime around uh, Thanksgiving before or just after Thanksgiving, uh, and that uh, he said that it would satisfy both moderate and progressive wings of our party. Uh, I don't know who that potentially could be. I don't think Jesus Christ could satisfy, satisfy <laughs> both the moderate and progressive wings of the Democratic Party when it comes to the Treasury Secretary. But I'm certainly interested to see. Uh, interestingly enough, I think the Secretary of the Treasury, maybe Secretary of Defense, are the only two positions to be held only by white men uh, in the history uh, of both of those positions. Um, so I think there's some pressure to, to at least appoint a person of color, a woman, um, to, to satisfy you know, uh, our party. Um, and it'll be interesting to see who he, who he comes up with. That's that is really that is something good to keep on your radar, John. What do you think about his about his pick? I, I honestly cannot imagine who that might be, and I think Kevin mentioned some very important uh, benchmarks for qualifications beyond just sheer talent and the enormity of the responsibility or what are some of the other qualities that will be very important to the Democratic base. But I can't imagine who that would be yet. So I think we're all looking forward to hearing who that nominee will be. (laughs) I'm looking forward to a lot of nominees, but especially it'll (laughs) be interesting to see how diverse Joe Biden makes his cabinet. So, John, what's on your radar? Well, I've always got two for Kevin, if you'll allow me here, June. So on the national front, uh, I think Thanksgiving, we're going to see uh, national pandemic fatigue. I think so many Americans are just exhausted of all of the restrictions and the mask wearing and the like. And not that they'll stop wearing masks, but I think they'll, they're asking lawmakers to let them exercise common sense. They're seeing that the death rates are falling. Most of the cases are among young people. We have better treatments. Obviously, now the hopeful promise of vaccines in the new year, less hospital overcrowding. And I think going into Thanksgiving and then Christmas and Hanukkah in December, I think people are going to be surprised by the level of pandemic fatigue that has set in across the country. Internationally, I think uh, President Biden and his administration will be far tougher on China than most China, uh, China watchers believe right now. Silicon Valley wants intellectual property protections. Democrats want human rights violations. 
to be called out, and Republicans want geopolitical expansion reined in. But Joe Biden's got to be very careful. Xi Jinping is going to come to him with the siren song of climate change cooperation, and I hope Biden's team reminds him that the Chinese are building hundreds of coal-fired plants this year and for the next 10 years in China and around the world. China's climate claims are foolish and lies. I'll leave it at that. So, Kevin, I want you to respond to the to the pandemic fatigue, because I know I'm feeling pandemic fatigue, but I'm also feeling more fear lately with all sure. the various predict, you know, predictions about how bad it's going to get. So what do you think about the pandemic fatigue? Yeah, June, it's definitely, you know, to John's point, a delicate balance. There's certainly fatigue that everyone is feeling. There's a lot of distress with not being with uh, relatives uh, for uh, for the holidays, but we also saw a week in which uh, every day we're seeing uh, 150, 160,000 new infections. We've crossed the quarter, uh, one quarter million uh, mark uh, with deaths. Um, so it is good news that vaccines are on the way. It is good news that the death rate is going down, but the infection rate is out of control, rising in every single state. And it is that delicate balance when the CDC says do not travel for Thanksgiving. Uh, you know, I think we all need to take that seriously. Uh, it is good that hospitals and clinics are, are better able to respond because they've had more time studying uh, uh, the comorbidities of, of COVID-19. But again, it's still a very, very dangerous time uh, for this country. I think, too, I think John makes a good point on the China front. I do think, and, and we have to remember, Vice President Biden and Vice President Xi came up together at the same time. So there's a familiarity there between the two of them. In the last uh, one of the last Democratic debates, you saw then Vice President Biden, now President like Biden, go really hard on the human rights front with the Uyghurs, ethnic Uyghurs in China. So I do think John makes a good point in terms of accountability from the Biden-Harris administration. All right. And now I'll tell you what's on my radar. It's this 11th hour regulatory race, the Trump administration rushing to issue permits, finalize major environmental regulations, and this week even saying opening the rights to drill for oil in the Alaskan wilderness before Inauguration Day. And I am looking to see whether they can actually accomplish that. There's such a tight timeline they'd have to keep to in order to get those drilling rights, actually to get contracts, leases for those drilling rights. And then there are so many things that the Biden administration can do after inauguration to discount those, to to just take them back, basically. So my point, I don't really understand one thing. Why bother? Why bother with this last minute push to sell drilling rights in the Alaskan wilderness? So, John, I ask you, why bother? Uh, again, uh, if we use historical precedent, we'll see that there have been many instances, June, where outgoing presidents use the last weeks of their administration to use the power of the executive order to implement a number of policies that were either too controversial or which they couldn't get passed through the legislature uh, during the course of their administrations. And part of this may also be um, maybe a personal uh, peak. In other words, giving uh, the president-elect a number of issues that he would have to undo at potential political cost. He would have to explain why policies that could be seemingly popular, despite the technical aspects and the difficulties that you mentioned, but having to roll them back and explaining it complicates the incoming administration's policy portfolio. And, uh, and Kevin, what's your take on the regulatory rush? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's a very good point by John in, in that, you know, I, I view it through the, the lens of, of these troop withdrawals in the Middle East. It's far more difficult to send troops once they've returned home uh, to uh, a, a serious uh, spot uh, than it is to keep them there or in, in augment uh, troop strength uh, in those different regions. So I view, I view it through that lens. Is that That's much more difficult, I think, than the regulatory that, you know, folks, you know, listening often don't understand, you know, the regulatory nuances of federal lending policy. Um uh, they certainly do if they're listening to Bloomberg, uh, but the general public <laughs> necessarily doesn't uh, understand that. But they do understand tr troop movement, uh, and if those troops are brought home, it's far going to be far more difficult to send them uh, to that region again when uh, when there are necessary issues that, that come up that, we're, that we need that strength in the region. 
All right. Well, there's a lot to watch in these days before the next administration comes in. Thank you both for spending this hour with me. That's Kevin Walling, Democratic strategist at HG Creative Media, and John Sidalitis, geopolitical strategist at Trilogy Advisors and diplomacy consultant to the State Department. And as far as those drilling leases are concerned, while Biden officials can unwind many Trump rules, it's going to consume time and resources, even as the incoming administration intends to write new measures regarding pollution, energy efficiency, and drilling regulations. So, in fact, it may take years before the Biden administration can unwind some of the deregulation that the Trump administration has put in place to take away what the Obama administration put in place. That's it for this edition of Sound On. I'm June Gross. I've been sitting in for Kevin Cirilli. Kevin will be back with you on Monday evening. I want to wish all of you a great weekend. Take care. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.